O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. It is the, the sort of the, the last uh, Sunday of Epiphany, the revelation of Jesus, the unfolding revelation through his life. Um, Transfiguration Sunday is the last Sunday of Epiphany, so Wednesday coming up will be uh, Ash Wednesday. We're going to have a service here at the house um, at 1 o'clock. If anybody wants to come, let me know. Um, message me on Facebook or uh, shoot me a text message, give me a call, whatever, and and I'll give you the details. At any rate, we had a great week last week. We went to Knoxville for a few days. We had a, uh, Suzanne has a cousin in Texas, um, and and he 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 was getting married for the, for the second time. Um, he's like older than we are, like fifteen, well, thirteen years older than I am. So at any rate, he and his um, fiance. Uh, had contacted me and asked me if I would do a wedding. They had, uh, the story is, is that they had uh, been dating 55 years ago when they were in college, and um, they, they were sort of engaged to be engaged. He had given her his fraternity pin at, at, a, um, at, a, at a sorority dance on February the 13th of 1968, and so what they wanted to do, both their spouses have, have gone on now, and so they wanted to get married on that same day, 55 years later. Um, it, it's a it's a complicated story to say the least. Um, the the uh, that pre engagement thing, some things happened that she ended up not coming back to the school and not dating uh, him any longer. Not for any good reason, by the way. It was it was not good at all. It, it was somebody enticed her to sin. Um, and it devastated her. Uh, wonderful, wonderful woman. Uh, absolutely delighted to have been part of that celebration of that marriage. It, it was a wonderful thing to be there for the two of them and, and a huge blessing in our lives. It was a busy couple of days, and we really enjoyed being with a bunch of family and, and really enjoyed our time together with, with that group. And, and so it was, a, it was a true blessing. It was one of the highlights of my ministry to be involved in that wedding. It, it's something that should have happened. 55 years ago, Satan got involved, got in the mix. I mean, God knew everything that was going to happen, so it's not a question of that. But, but the beautiful thing is, is that the, the extravagant love of God in bringing them back together 55 years later um, to share the end of their lives together. It's just a beautiful, beautiful expression of God's loving concern for us. And, and as I told them, um, it, it's an indication, again, that, that God's never done with us. You know, it, there, there's something about, to me, the uh, the binding of Isaac in uh, Genesis 22, where, you know, God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one you love, and take him up onto the mountain. I'll show you and sacrifice him to me there. You know, the man had waited 25 years for the fulfillment of a promise and went through a lot during that period of time. And and now he has the son. Just, just leave that old man alone is sort of the way it feels. But the reality is God's never done with us. He's never done using us, and he's never done blessing us. If we're open to receive the blessing, then he's there to give it to us. And so this was a beautiful story of redemption um, that, that I was just really, really um, blessed 
to be a part of. So anyway, so we had a great um, end of last week, and then we've we've had a good week this week as well. So at any rate, um, now we're going to talk about the transfiguration. And so what we're going to hear is is that that God's approval of his beloved son and that that he stands apart and alone and above all else including Moses and Elijah which would be the law and the prophets they would represent them but they represent in in some unique ways so where the the uh, lessons begin today is in Exodus 24 verses 12 to 18 but i want to give you here and in the gospel today i want to give you a little bit of background to that so prior to the the beginning of our reading today what's happened is in in chapter 24 is the lord said to Moses come up to the lord you and Aaron Nadab and Abihu so Moses and three guys are going to go up on the mountain and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall come, not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So Moses go down, goes down and explains everything to the people, and everybody's response is, okay, we'll do exactly that. And then he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes. And he sent men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And then Moses took the blood and put it in basins, and half he threw against the altar. Then took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All the Lord has spoken, we'll do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let certainly not the way we worship. I, I've never thrown blood on anybody. I've never even spilled wine on anybody on purpose. <laughs> so Moses, the three guys, and 70 elders go up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. In other words, he didn't kill them. They beheld God and ate and drank. And, and what the, the way that, that it's actually translated within Judaism is to say that what actually happened was that they saw his feet. And, and that would make perfect sense because the ark is the footstool of God. His throne's in heaven, but, but the ark is his footstool, and it's on earth. So that's the backdrop for what we got. So they've just finished that meal, and then the Lord says to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So he's, he's saying, you know, look, I'm not leaving you alone. These two guys know enough to handle the disputes that are likely to come up within the period of time that I'm up on the mountain. And it doesn't say that he knew how long he would be on the mountain. It doesn't say, come up for 40 days and, and I'll be with you during that time. And so Moses says, you know, here's the deal. You just guys wait here and, and you, I've left Aaron and her with you and they, they can handle disputes. So Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the, mount, uh, of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So in some ways, you can look and see that Moses, can you imagine being in a cloud on the mountain for six days waiting, waiting for God to call? 
waiting for God to, to say he's here. And so six days he sits in this cloud. And then finally on the seventh day, you know, again, we've got, we've got images of creation here with six days. And then the seventh day, God calls him, and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses is being called up to receive the tablets, and he's going to be there 40 days and 40 nights. But, But first, he has to sit in the waiting room in the cloud by himself, for six days, I think. I don't think Joshua goes with him there. It doesn't sound like he goes up there. It sounds like just Moses goes. He went up into the mountain. Joshua, uh, he rose with his assistant. Yes, so Joshua doesn't go with him. But it, I just wanted to make sure that that wasn't, that I was, hadn't missed some a detail there. So he stands or sits or does whatever for six days waiting on the Lord. Can you imagine? I mean, did I get it wrong? Did I make a mistake? Did did I really hear God say, come up on the mountain? And then finally God calls him and calls him up onto the mountain. And so the appearance of God there is like this devouring fire. It's an interesting thing. It's not just a fire. It's a devouring fire. There's a a violence to this. And yet Moses is called into that devouring fire. And remember, this all began with a, a fire way back in Exodus 2 it all begins with a fire as well right in the in the burning bush and what is that fire not doing devouring it's not devouring it's just a fire here however this fire looks different and it was seen by all the people of Israel and then Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain into the devouring fire so you can imagine then why when Moses doesn't come back, when they expect him to come back, why everything falls apart. They saw him go up into the cloud. They see this devouring fire, and then Moses goes up into the devouring fire. Sounds kind of like the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar as well with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they're called into, uh, they're called to follow the Lord, and then he throws them in and says, "You're able." They say, "You're able to deliver us." God's able to deliver us, but if He doesn't, He's still God. Doesn't change anything. So, so if you could imagine being the people of Israel, being Moses waiting for six days to to be called by God, and the questions that would come during that period of time, versus now the people who see this devouring fire on top of the mountain, and then Moses goes up, and then when he doesn't return in forty days, I mean, they had to surely have thought he's been devoured by that fire. And in Jewish lore, uh, what will happen is is that they will say that Satan, the Satan, cast a vision in the sky to tempt the people. And that vision in the sky was Moses hanging with his arms outstretched and his head down. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like a cross. but And that's what caused them to go into such great fear that Moses had died. And so that that's why then that this why they say that that they made the um, calves, but nonetheless, no matter whether that that story is apocryphal, it's just part of Jewish lore. But it, but at the same time, we know that they did panic, and, and it could have been just that. Well, he didn't come back when they expected him to come back, and so they assumed that this fire had consumed him, 
in that place. But anyway, so you get a theophany here where where the the 70 elders and um, Moses and three of the elders um, go up into the cloud with 70 people, and they have a meal there in the presence of God. And then Moses alone is called up closer into the very presence of God, further up the mountain. And, and that's an important distinction between the two. And so now we come to the transfiguration story, and, and what we get there is after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Sort of like Moses, right, with the three men and the 70 elders who go up. And so here Jesus goes up with three of his disciples up onto a high mountain. And as I said, it refers to after six days. So after six days, what do you mean? What, what happened six days before that? Well, that's when Peter made his confession of Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And then they gave various answers for who they said he was. Some say Moses, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And then Peter makes the confession when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter makes the confession. You're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And then Jesus begins to talk about his death, and Peter says, oh, no, 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 that won't happen to you. And Jesus rebukes him with, um, get behind me, Satan. So it's six days after Peter made his confession, but then immediately didn't take it back, but he felt like he knew better then <laughs> than the Son of the living God, uh, what was actually going to happen. And so Peter is not listening to Jesus with the kind of respect and deference he should have been if he really believed that he was the son of the living God, the Messiah, then he wouldn't have undertaken to lecture that Messiah about whether or not he would be crucified. And so that's it's three days after that now that, that our action in transfiguration takes place. So Jesus goes up the mountain with these three men, James, Peter, and John, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So what's happened is he has metamorphosed. A metamorphosis has happened here, and they see the true Jesus. In some ways, that what, what, the, what the way Jewish commentators talk about what happened on the mountain with Moses when he went up with the three men and the 70 elders is, is that there was a veil that was pierced for a brief period of time to allow God to make that theophany and that revelation and be among his people in that setting. And so here what we see is, is the same thing. So when Moses would go and meet with God in the tent of meeting, what would happen? He would end up with a shining face. In my way of looking at it, it's sort of a God tan, it's, but he's like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. He's absorbed that light, and now that light from having been with God is on his face. And it's evident. It's something that people can actually see that he's, that he's experiencing here. And so what does he do? Then he puts a veil over his face so that they can't see that that glory was fading. And here what we see with Jesus is exactly the opposite situation. The veil hiding his divinity is lifted briefly before these three men, and his face shines like the sun. Like I said, Moses' face would have, shone, would have shone as well, but it was more like the moon reflecting the glory and the light of the one in whose presence he had just been. With Jesus, it's coming 
out from him. So it's as though the veil has been lifted that hid that divine part of his nature from the world, and now they see the Shekinah glory emanating from Jesus because it shines like the sun, which means that that, 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 that glow, that light, is coming from within Jesus. And his clothes then also are transformed and transfigured by that same glory coming from within. It transforms everything in the same way that when Jesus heals, for instance, the woman with the issue of blood or a leper that he touches, that woman with the issue of blood touches him, he touches the leper in the same way that he transmits cleanliness and wholeness to those two people when that's not the way it works as far as as, uh, impurity is concerned, you can only contract impurity. You can't contract purity. You don't become pure by touching a holy object. You become impure by touching something that is impure. But here, when Jesus comes, he transmits purity to that which he touches, which is impure. And so here, when the light comes, it, it it also affects everything, including his clothing. Now, one of the things that I'll tell you, and I've said this before, but, but it's always worth repeating, is, is that, that when they try and figure out in Judaism um, sort of certain things, one of the things that, that they say about Adam and Eve, now this is all lore, right? I mean, it's all biblically derived, but it's not biblical, in that sense, so I just want you to understand this, that the way they understand Adam and Eve's nakedness, because they were always naked, but before, uh, before sin entered the world, they were, they were naked and unashamed, and then after sin enters, they're naked and ashamed. And so one of the ways that they look at that is to say that, that what had happened was God had clothed them in garments of light, with his glory being those garments of light. And, and that was so that they would be identifiable by the animals and others as God's representatives on the earth, that they had the power and the authority of God to carry out a mission that they were given to rule over the earth, which will be our ultimate destiny after the coming again of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom on the earth, we then will become rulers of the earth. That, that's our job. It was always intended that would be our job. And so what they say is those garments of light then, when sin enters the world, those go away, and God has to make them clothing to wear instead. And so here what you can see is, My goodness, that's exactly what Jesus has done. No sin, therefore only glory. And so everything shows forth Jesus' true identity. It's sort of like Clark Kent going into the phone booth and then becoming Superman, right? I mean, he was always Superman, but people didn't see him as Superman. They saw him as Clark Kent here They know Jesus is a man. They know that he is Messiah. Peter's already made that confession. The others were just afraid to say it out loud, I believe. And and now what you get is the revelation of who he is. The divine nature of Jesus is revealed to them on this mountain. And then, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah speaking with him. 
Now, I've said this before as well. They represent the law and the prophets, period, end of sentence. But they also represent Moses and Elijah as men, men who had audiences with God on mountains. Right. So after the sin of the golden calf, Moses says he wants to see God's glory. And, and God says, you can't see my face and live, therefore I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, I'm going to put my hand over you, and you can see my back as I pass by, and you will see my glory. And in the same way, on the mountain, when Elijah has run from Jezebel, he has abandoned the people of God, and he is out there by himself, God has fed him, sent him out there on another 40-day fast, the two of them and Jesus are the only three people in all of Scripture that we see doing 40-day fasts. So now, those three men are here, these these two men who have had theophanies of God, but have not seen God's face, now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, see his face. They see the face of God in Jesus, and they know who he is. They would have recognized him because of their earlier theophanies, their earlier revelations that they'd experienced, and now they know. They see him face to face. And so what are they doing? I mean, these two men could have been redeemers, for Israel, that Moses' case, he could have been the redeemer who brought him out of Egypt and into the promised land. Uh, uh, Elijah could have delivered his people from the prophets of Baal, from the hand of Jezebel and her husband Ahab, could have delivered them from that, except in both cases, what happened was they each put the people down, and that's the great sin each of these two men had and disqualified themselves as redeemers. They put the people down. Moses does when he says, you rebels, must we do these things to prove ourselves? So what happens there, he has separated himself from God's people and aligned himself fully with God. Well, he's sinful humanity as well. He stands as God's representative to the people and the people's representative to God. And here he's abandoned the people and now he's railing against them. And separating himself and saying, must we, you rebels, must we. And so he separated himself from the people. And, and, and you can't have a redeemer who will separate himself from the people. Because in order to redeem the people, he has to be fully immersed in who they are. And he has to plead the case of these people before the Lord. Elijah does the same thing after the, uh, after the battle with the prophets of Baal on the mountain at Mount Carmel where he's decisively victorious, and the prophets of Baal are destroyed, then uh, Jezebel says that she's going to kill him, and he takes off and runs, and he goes into the wilderness, and he accuses the people. He becomes the accuser of the people in the wilderness to God. And that, that's not going to work. He can't be that. He says, I've been, God asked him why he's out there. He says, why are you, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenants, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, there was one person who sought your life, and that was Jezebel. It's not your job to be the accuser of God's people. That's the job of the Satan to do that. You're not to be the accuser of God's people. And that's what Elijah has become, and he separated himself from the people, and he'd gone out into the wilderness. And so both these men, both these would-be redeemers, what do they need? They need a redeemer. They need a savior. Because without Jesus finishing this race, 
Neither of them has the hope of eternal life either. So they appear talking with him, and and the question is always, how did they know this? And I have no idea, but they did. (laughs) And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and Moses, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking, Peter was, when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And the bright cloud is always the presence of God. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when they heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So Peter has said, Let's make booths for everybody here, and we can hang out, and we can talk, and we can learn from the three of you is essentially what he's trying to say. So he's raised Jesus up in some ways, but at the same time, he's not seeing the distinction between these three men until the voice comes from heaven and proclaims, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then he's alone. Those two men need a Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. And it's he's just got to finish this race. And, and, I, and I just kind of feel like that maybe this conversation that Moses and Elijah are having with Jesus is to encourage and comfort him, to say things are about to get really, really tough. We know that. We've experienced it. We know what it's like to be forsaken. We know what it's like to be challenged constantly. We know what it's like to be under the stress and the pressure you are of trying to lead people. But we need you to finish this race where we failed. Because they did ultimately fail. That's the reason God needs a Messiah. is because the men who could have been redeemers failed in that work. And so Jesus comes as a unique person in history, and that's exactly the takeaway the disciples are intended to have here, is is that that this is my beloved son. That's a distinction between him and Moses and Elijah. They're they're getting the revelation in, in visual ways, but now they get it in the voice from heaven proclaiming Jesus is the beloved son, and then he's the only one left. And then the statement, listen to him, is also pointing back to prophecy that Moses himself had given. Back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him to whom you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said to me, let me not again hear the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire lest anymore, lest I die. And so he goes on and he says, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command them. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So he's telling them that there will be a prophet like Moses that will arise, and when that prophet arises, they will be commanded to listen to him. And here, the voice from heaven commands these three disciples to listen to Jesus. 
as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so I'd love to know what that conversation sounded like. What does he mean? Raised from the dead. When's he going to die? When's all this? When's this going to happen? But they had to have been changed by this encounter as well. The way they thought about Jesus had to have been completely changed by the encounter with this theophany on the mountain. And so Peter says, Look, we didn't follow, this is 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. The gospel was Matthew 17, 1 to 9. So Peter in, in 2 Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, we didn't make a bunch of stuff up. We didn't spend a lot of time sitting around going, all right, so let's all agree on something here. Let's come up with a story. Let's cook this up. We'll all agree on it, and then we'll go tell this. Peter says, no, we didn't do that. No, no, no. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty, and that's exactly the same thing that John says in 1 John 1. He talks about we saw him. We touched him. We spent time with him. He was real. We were eyewitnesses of these things. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only. And that's what Peter's saying here. He says, I didn't make up a story. I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes, and I heard it with my own ears. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He says, we ourselves, me and James and John, heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I know what I'm talking about. I was there. I didn't make this stuff up. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. So what, what is this prophetic word which is more fully confirmed? Well, what it essentially is saying is that the transfiguration affirmed all the Old Testament prophecy concerning Messiah particularly. So it was fulfilled in Jesus in that moment. Because the law and the prophets went away, and all that was left was Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He said it was confirmed in that moment where that voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That confirmed all the prophecy. And it confirmed Jesus as well. But he is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets just exactly the way he said he would be early on in Matthew at the Sermon on the Mount. That not a jot, not a tittle would pass away until he was complete with his mission. And so here, Peter says, we heard all this, and it confirmed everything about the law and the prophets to us. All that was fulfilled in Jesus. So it's not like there's no need any further for Moses and Elijah but, but Jesus fulfills all those things. And so all our hopes, all our dreams, all the things that we believe, those were all fulfilled in Jesus. And what we saw on the mountain that day was the confirmation of Jesus, but also of all of the Old Testament. And he says, you'll be, so that prophetic word was more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he, he is doing here what he does later when he speaks of all Scripture being God-breathed. He's saying that, that all this stuff, all this Scripture, all this prophecy is directly from God. It's not cooked up in somebody's imagination any more than we're following cleverly devised myths to make known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does he say? He says, pay attention to these prophecies. Pay attention to the Word of God as a, dark, a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. When is that? That's the eschaton. That's the end of the age. He says, until then, in the same way Paul says that the law was a pedagogue when he speaks to the Galatians, he says the law was a pedagogue that got you to the place where you could enjoy freedom in Christ Jesus by the giving of the Holy Spirit. The law got us to that place where we can now, by the Holy Spirit, live in such a way that we please God, that we're no longer sinners. We're those who are led by the Spirit. doesn't mean we no longer sin. It just means we're no longer identified as sinners. We are the redeemed. And so that's exactly what he says here is, he says, pay attention to this as, a, 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 as to a lamp shining in a dark place until that day dawns. And what do we know from the book of the Revelation? And that is there is no darkness at all. And so all things will be made clear. It's the same kind of image that Paul uses when he said, now we see through in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. And so it's the recognition that we live in the now and the not yet all at the same time. We, we live in the now in the sense that Jesus has come and we are saved, we are redeemed, but what we will be is not yet known. So we are in between the now and the not yet. And in doing that, in living in the now and the not yet, we're commanded to do one very simple thing, to recognize, celebrate, and worship the Lord Jesus and listen to him and do and obey all that he commands. He is the authority par excellence. Nothing compares with him. And so we bend the knee now in worship and adoration to the incarnate Son of God who now sits and intercedes for us before the throne of God who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And we're invited to participate in that joyously this day. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.